0: All right, thank you, Peter. Um, quick note before we get started in the sermon: we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of uh, the sermon, and so if if you look in the seat backs in front of you, there may be little sets of elements. If you don't see one there, you can grab one from the back table there. So we are looking at this very familiar passage that is read quite often this time of year, um, and we're going to look at a particular angle on this passage. And that angle is the issue of sovereignty. So let's pray as we approach it and ask for God's grace as we hear his word. Our Father, we need you. You know how easily we are distracted. You know how sometimes dull our minds are and how cold sometimes our hearts are. Give us help through your Spirit to hear your Word, to be shaped by it, to be brought to worship and awe at your grace and the beauty of your plan. So we trust your work, and we ask that you would continue it today, this week, this month, and in the years to come even through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the idea of sovereignty has to do with control or authority, right? That's the idea. it's It's the idea that you have authority, control over a certain realm or area of life. And we see this in human realms as different people, to different degrees, have some level of sovereignty, over certain realms, right? You might think of a teacher in their classroom, right? I've noticed that teachers tend to kind of view their classroom like their little kingdom. It's, it's their area, and they run by their rules, and, and they're the kind of king or queen of, of, of their classroom. There's a level of sovereignty there, and if you're a teacher, you know what I'm talking about. It's your deal. You run the show, right? Or you might think of a, a parent in the home. There, there's a level of sovereignty there or control. That they make the rules and, and call the shots and decide on what's going to be eaten and, you know, those sorts of things. Um, or you might think of uh, you over the objects in your room. Maybe, maybe you're a younger person. You don't have a lot of areas of sovereignty. But maybe in your room you have some sovereignty over, you know, the, where you put your stuffed animals and what they do. You know, you're in control of them. Most of the time, though, we have to admit, at least over time as we experience life, that our sovereignty is limited. We're not as in control as we think we are. You know, we, we think we're in control of our schedule until we hit traffic. We think we're in control of our kids until they act up. And suddenly, we're not in control. We can't stop them from throwing a fit in the middle of the supermarket. We're just not as in control as we think. Or we, we, we think we're in control of our health. And we eat right. And we're exercising and doing all this stuff. And then we get sick. And everything is thrown off. We think we're in control of our finances. We've got it all together, all lined up, all, all our ducks in a row. And, and then our car breaks down. It's this $2,000 repair or something. and. Suddenly, everything's thrown off. We think we're in control of our, our career. We, we, we're advancing, and maybe we have the right degrees and, and certifications or whatever, and and, and, then, and then suddenly we can't find a job, or our company goes under, and, and we're kind of left, and we realize we're not as in control as we think we are. We're just not. There are times when we are kind of Slapped in the face with the reality that the idea that we're in control is mostly an illusion. And you wonder if this is part of what Mary and Joseph experienced over the course of these verses that we're looking at this morning. You can imagine they probably had their plans all kind of lined up. Like they were betrothed, which means they had plans that they were going to get married. Maybe they even had a date. And then they figured, you know, after we get married, well, this will be our house that maybe Joseph is building. Uh, we're not sure. And, and, and they're going to kind of set up their household there in Nazareth. And, and, and then Joseph is going to just continue his working as a carpenter. And, and then they maybe start a family. They had these ideas and plans in their minds for how things would go. And then everything went crazy. <laughs> I mean, utterly crazy for them, right? An angel appears to Mary. You're conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this child in you will be the Son of God. He will be take the throne of his father David, and all of the. This is crazy, and and then Joseph is reeling with this news. She's pregnant. What does this mean? And this is so shameful in and, and this society. And and the angel comes to him, tells him, "No, you don't. Don't divorce her. Don't put her away. You need to carry through with this thing." And I have a calling for you and your life, and and just. They must have been reeling from everything, feeling so out of their control. And then as time progresses, as they deal with the shame and the questions of the future, and, and, and th- that, then as, as time progresses, th- then this census is called and they have to travel to Bethlehem right at the time she needs to give birth, and they end up giving birth there, but, but it's not the way they would have planned. It's not in even a, a cozy ho- hotel or whatever in the inn. It's, it's in the stable with the animals. It's pretty clear that they weren't in control. This is not how they would have planned it. But there was someone who was in control, there is someone who is in complete control, a- exercising his absolute sovereignty in the middle of all of this craziness that Mary and Joseph experienced. And this morning we want to get a closer look at that control, that sovereignty. A sovereignty that was not only work, work in Mary and Joseph's life, but is at work in our lives. So three points this morning. Number one, unseen sovereignty number two, mysterious sovereignty, and number three, beautiful sovereignty. So, number one, unseen sovereignty. As we get into this, first, let's start with the sovereignty that is seen, okay? Because there is a sovereignty in this passage that is maybe more visible to, from from a human perspective, right? Look at verses one through three here. Luke two, verses one through three. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of... I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong passage. I was reading Luke 2. (laughs) Luke, or Luke 3. Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each... To his own town So these three little verses are a display, an expression of the sovereignty of Caesar Augustus. And from all appearances, Caesar Augustus was the one in control here. In fact, at this point in history, he is the most powerful man in the world. He was the first of Rome's rulers to take on the title of emperor. He ruled for some 40 years. And under his rule the empire the size of the empire nearly doubled and he brought with it unparalleled prosperity for the Roman empire lots of successful military com- campaigns and building projects and administrative endeavors and so on and to finance all of this There was this system of taxation that was developed, and in order to institute this taxation, a census was taken, which is what we read about here. And essentially, each person would register in order to be later taxed, so that the government could keep track of who was taxed, and how much they owed, and where they lived, and and so on and so forth, to be able to fund this giant empire ruled by this extremely powerful man but the census and the taxation kind of had a secondary purpose and it really was not only to gather taxes but also to express dominance like i'm in control you travel to your hometown so you can sign a paper so you can give me money all because i said so also i can see how vast my kingdom is and continue to maintain and expand my empire. It was an expression of power, of dominance. And so from just initial readings, it appears that it is Caesar who is sovereign, the one who is in control and calling the shots. But the reality is he isn't. The reality is there's a greater king working out his plan. There is one who is not just Sovereign in a limited human way, there is one who is absolutely sovereign. Notice verse 4, Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth, a town in Galilee. This is where Jesus would have been born, were it not for this census. But in God's sovereignty, Caesar ordered a census, and Jesus then was born in Bethlehem. And this was precisely what God had declared would happen hundreds of years before. Remember the prophecy in Micah 5, verse 2? It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So God... In his sovereignty, says, my Messiah, my King, will be born in Bethlehem. And when the time comes, God in his sovereignty ordains that Caesar would declare this census and that Mary and Joseph would then travel to Bethlehem where Jesus would be born, fulfilling the prophecy of what God had already said would happen. God was in control. Even in the moment when it looked like it was Caesar in control, it was really God in control working out his plan, his sovereign plan. Notice also here the references to the city of David. Verse 4, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he he was of the house and lineage of David. This is another expression of God's sovereignty. In God's sovereign plan, he had declared hundreds of years before, that his promised king, the Savior, would come from the line of David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, he's speaking to David here. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He, will build, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Through David's line, God is sovereignly bringing a king, a forever king now. Everything here, the timing of the birth, the census, the hometown, the parents, all of it is a demonstration of God's sovereignty over the greatest rulers on the earth and the littlest, minutest details. He is sovereign over all of it. As Paul says in Acts 17, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he made every nation, and he determined the allotted periods of individuals' lives and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Or you might think of Ephesians 1, where we're told that God works all things after the counsel of his will. Think about that phrase for a second. He works, he does, causes to happen all things after the counsel of his will, after what he desires, after his his heart, his plan, right? Not some things, not just certain things, all things. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Here's the thing I want us to just begin to take away here from, a, from Luke 2, is that, that this sovereignty over all things is normally unseen. Think about things that are unseen to the naked eye, right? Um, I, I remember hearing that phrase the first time, and it, it kind of catches your attention, right? You can't see these things with the naked eye. You know. Whoa, there's stuff I can't see with my naked. Because we think, well, I, I can, I can see everything that exists and everything's happening. And suddenly you stop. Whoa, there's a whole realm of stuff. And, and, and then you get like one of those microscopes, in I don't know, middle school or high school, and you look at these things. And you're like, whoa, I, I just saw a drop of water, and I look at this, and there's all these organisms crawling around. Right? Um, there's things that are unseen to the naked eye. Right? And and that's the way it is with God's sovereignty. You you can't see it on the surface most of the time. It's not as if some hand is, you know, coming out of the nothingness and doing things visibly in our lives. It's unseen. But it is nonetheless real, like those organisms, like all all the bacteria that we see everywhere. Those things are still real, Right? just because they're unseen to the naked eye normally doesn't mean they're not real and so it is with God's sovereignty it is real it's true he is sovereign over all of life and when we put on the lens of scripture when we begin to come in faith with the spirit's help we begin, we can begin to see that God is sovereign over our lives as RC Sproul once said there is there, there are no maverick molecules in the universe this what we're talking about here is what theologians normally call God's providence. It's God's sovereignty in the little things of daily life, in the unseen ways he directs our paths and our lives. Where we live, the family we're in, the path we've taken, the successes, the joys, the sufferings, the sorrows, his unseen hand is governing it all. That's number one, unseen sovereignty. Number two, mysterious sovereignty. It is good, it is good to know that God is sovereign. I mean, think of the alternatives. No one's in control. This thing called fate or chance, which is really nothing, it just means things are just pure randomness. of I, it, The idea that our lives are governed by Nothing. It really should be terrifying if you stop and think about it. No meaning to it. No direction to it. Just, just, who knows? Just things are happening and we don't know what's going to happen next or if there's any purpose or meaning to anything. It is far better to know that there is a sovereign God unseen ruling all of it. However, We need to acknowledge really quickly that even when we know this, even when we can recognize God's sovereignty, it doesn't necessarily answer all of our questions, right? It's not like, oh, he's sovereign. Well, I'm good now. Maybe it should be that way. But there is so much mystery in God's sovereignty, isn't there? At least from our perspectives, not from his, but from our perspectives, there's so much mystery in his sovereignty. In in some ways, it ends up creating more questions, right? Think about Mary and Joseph for a moment. God had sovereignly chosen them for this. He had chosen Mary to bear and deliver this baby, God in the flesh, the Savior of mankind. He had chosen Joseph and his sovereignty to be Jesus' earthly father. And and on some level, they understood God's sovereignty. That, That was part of the angels' announcements was, this is what's going to happen. God's in control, and he's telling you what's going to happen and what your calling is. He's in, a, he, he's in authority here, right? So you, you, you He's sovereign. It was clear in those pronouncements from the angels. At the same time, though, you just imagine all of the questions, all of the things that they didn't understand and how all this was working out, right? Like, I don't understand this. And it's not hard to imagine them thinking, couldn't this happen differently? Like, maybe it would have been better if this baby was born to somebody in the royal line, you know? Or or, or maybe this, you know, it wouldn't have been better to this baby to be born to a family that's a little more well-off? Or, I don't know, like, God, this is a really awkward, shameful, culturally situation. Mary is pregnant without being married, and, and, and the whole society would never understand any explanation they tried to give. God, why? Why does it have to be that way? Why, why do we have to go through this? And now, now we're having to travel, right? She's like pregnant, pregnant, and like about to burst, and, and, and now we're having to travel all this way? And then we get there, there's no room in the inn, and we have to, God, why? What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. I would have planned this very differently. There's so much mystery here, from the little details of like, it would have been nice to have a clean place to have a baby, to why in the world us, and why do we have to deal with the shame of this? How do we, why do we have to bear the burden of this? What are, you, what are you doing, God? Why did it have to be so hard? Why did it not make sense? How is this supposed to work out for good? You can see the mystery of God's sovereignty here, can't you? Pretty similar to our lives. We're trusting Jesus, seeking to obey Him faithfully. Seems like it would make sense for God to make our lives a little more comfortable, easier, right? Like, Why do we experience so much pain and suffering? Why is my friend who has served so faithfully dealing with cancer at the age of 48? Why? Why is life so hard? It's it's mysterious, isn't it? What God's doing and why. Why? Why these wars? Why why this suffering? God's sovereignty is mysterious. The reason that it's mysterious here it is. I'll tell you the reason it's mysterious is because he's God and we're not. He's God and we're not. And that means two things. It means he doesn't owe us any answers. If, if you're not sure about that, go read the book of Job, which is one of the big points of the book of Job, is God doesn't owe Job any answers in the end. Secondly, the fact that God is God and we are not also means that in His divine wisdom, He could have a million reasons for what He's doing that we can't see or understand. His mind is Infinite. And he, as Scripture says, his, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are His ways and His thoughts above ours. He has reasons for doing things that we can't see or understand even. And even if He revealed His reasons and His plan, we often probably still wouldn't understand or get it, right? We are limited. We are finite creatures in our understanding it's going to be hard for us to get what God's doing. Only in eternity will we understand the mysteries of God's sovereignty. We just will not understand all of them on this earth. And to think that we could or demand that He must explain, we've got to be careful. He's God and we are not. There is mystery in His sovereignty that we must accept. He is God, and we are not. Unseen sovereignty, mysterious sovereignty, thirdly, beautiful sovereignty. While God's sovereignty might often be mysterious to us, in the end it will be beautiful. It will be. Look at verse 7, chapter 2 here in Luke says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. The son who would be the deliverer promised long ago, the savior we desperately needed, the king who will reign forever and ever, he is born. God in the flesh eternal became man to save. That alone is beautiful that alone is worth all of the mystery and unanswered questions the savior has come but there's more all of the difficult and mysterious sovereignty of god in the in the birth of jesus actually points forward to the way in which he would save see he he would not save by earthly riches or physical force or displays of royal splendor or, or all of the ways that we would expect and make sense to us, the big and famous ways. No, He would save by means of laying down His own life and dying for the sins of His people. See, God's sovereignty was not just that he was born as a lowly baby in an out-of-the-way place, unnoticed. His sovereign plan was that Jesus would continue to lower himself until, as Philippians says, he'd lower himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. This was God's sovereign plan, and it is beautiful when we see it. Acts chapter 4. Listen to this passage. It's a little longer, but notice The pairing in this passage of God's sovereignty and Jesus' suffering and death. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 24, says, And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, so here they are praying, and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The nations were raging. The powers of evil were setting themselves against Jesus. But it was under God's sovereignty. It was under His plan and His control to do whatever God had already predestined to take place. And what God had predestined to take place was that Jesus would die. And what's striking here in Acts chapter 4, and think about who's praying here. This is the disciples, the apostles. And in those hours after Jesus died, his death had been mysterious to them. This doesn't make sense. He's supposed to be the Savior. Why is he dead? But eventually it made sense, Right? After he was raised, it made all the sense in the world. And friends, the same is true for us. When we are raised in Christ one day, fully, finally, all of the mysteries will make sense. We will see the beauty that God has brought out of his mysterious sovereignty. In God's sovereignty, Jesus was born to die. In God's sovereignty, Jesus was rejected so that we might be reconciled. In God's sovereignty, Jesus absorbed God's just wrath so that we might be forgiven. In God's sovereignty, Jesus was raised so that we might live. In God's sovereignty, Jesus came out of the grave so that all things might be made new. Out of the most mysterious providence and sovereignty of of God came the most beautiful and glorious truths of our faith. Seeing this, seeing God's sovereignty in that, seeing the beauty of His sovereignty in the most ugly, heinous crime ever committed, the death of Jesus... And seeing the beauty that God brings out of that should help us in our lives. If God in His sovereignty can bring beauty out of the unjust death of the only innocent person ever to live, the one who deserved worship, if God can bring beauty out of that, He can bring beauty. He can bring redemption. He can bring life out of the mysteries of His sovereignty in your life, friend. He can, and He will if you're His child. You might not understand it at all, or you might understand little parts of it but still have all these questions. But God will bring beauty. He will bring life out of those mysteries for you. I think we know this deep down, but it's so hard in the moment, isn't it? Think about if you read fiction in particularly. You know this about stories, right? You, you know that stories go through these twists and turns and the heroes suffer and they're on the edge of a crisis and, and disaster and ruin. And, and in the end, a story, you, you come and you see triumph and life and you see the purposes and, and where it was all going, Right? Well, God is writing a story, a true story, the story of reality. And it will be the ending that we all long for. And all of the threads will tie together and they will create the beauty that we want to know and we were made for. Friend, if you're not a Christian, can you see the hope here? I hope you can. See, see, there are lots of attempts to try to explain and give meaning to suffering out there in the world. But most of them are kind of empty cliches and attempts at positive thinking, and there's no real meaning or beauty or life at the end of them. Not ultimately. In fact, I challenge you this week, if you're not a Christian, to think through, what meaning do I give to suffering? My understanding of life, my beliefs, do I what, what meaning can I give to suffering? Is, is there purpose? Is there any beauty at the end of suffering from my worldview, my way of seeing things? And I challenge you to consider Jesus, the one who came and suffered in a way that was mysterious in the moment, but brought supreme and glorious beauty for all who will trust in Him, and for all eternity. Consider that this week. You may be dealing with pain during these holidays. As, as you approach Christmas, it, it often can be one of the most painful times for those who are, have, have lost loved ones or are lonely or struggling. Take time to remember God's sovereignty, to remember the mysteries of God's sovereignty in Jesus' life, including his birth, to remember the mysteries of God's sovereignty in his crucifixion, and then remember the beauty of God's sovereignty in the resurrection that tells us that there is a very good ending to this story still to come. We can trust our sovereign God. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we are again looking to this mystery and beauty of God's sovereignty in the death of Jesus Christ. It's a visible representation of all of this. As we do this, I want to point out one little word that comes out of the mouth of Jesus as he Celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples. It's the word my. He says, Take and eat. This is my body. And he says, This is my blood of the covenant. My body. My blood, Jesus says. He didn't offer someone else's body up, He didn't shed the blood of some animal. It was His. In His death, Jesus gave up His very self for you, Christian. His very self. Think about that. Think about that love. The literal self-giving in that moment. As we take the Lord's Supper, we are receiving this afresh. We are, in a sense, trusting God's sovereignty that brought us life, and forgiveness, and reconciliation. He gave himself for us, his body, his blood. If you are not a Christian yet, this isn't for you yet. We'd encourage you to take this time to think, to pray, ask God to work in your heart. If you're here, I hope you're exploring and thinking about who Jesus really is, what God is up to, what Christmas is really about and where it was headed. Take this time to think, to pray. Ask Jesus right now to save you, forgive you. If you are a Christian, but you're just refusing to obey God, you're not walking in unity with his people, we encourage you to wait. The Bible warns us against this. But if you're trusting in Jesus alone, repenting, following him with his people, we invite you to join us as we take the bread we're looking to Jesus' body which bore our sins in the beautiful mystery he took our place and bore our sins in his body on the tree peter says matthew 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body, take and eat. Take the cup. We are taking a symbol of Jesus' blood, his life, his blood, his life blood.